The hymn writer says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is Lamb, whoever lives and pleads for me. Those words written by Cherie Duchesneau over a hundred years ago resonate very well with the passage we are looking at this morning. What the hymn writer is getting across is that Jesus is always praying. Even now in heaven he prays. He prayed on earth and even now he is praying. We are currently in Mark and as you know, those of you who have been following us, the message of Mark is that Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God on earth. If you scan through your Bible, you see just chapter 1 there, verse 14 to verse 15. That's the first sermon he preaches. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Last week, we saw that Jesus has come to, to, to share this kingdom of God with us. And last week, we learned that Jesus is starting his ministry in Capernaum. He starts his ministry in Capernaum, and it's actually on a Saturday, because we learned last week that Jesus, as, as he starts off, he heads to, to the synagogue on Saturday. And we saw Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, and he teaches with authority, and everybody's like, wow, Jesus is a man full of authority. Jesus was doing all of those things we saw last week uh, in those verses that come before verse 35 to show us what the kingdom of God is like. Everything in Mark is about Jesus showing us this is how the kingdom of God is like. It is a life full of power. It is a life that delivers us from the power of the devil. We saw him casting out demons. And it is a life that delivers spiritual health. As he healed those who were sick, he healed Simon's mother-in-law. He said, this is what life in the kingdom is like. Today we are in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Just that verse. And what Jesus now wants to show us is another aspect of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God is like? What is the kingdom of God like? Well, Jesus here answers for us that the kingdom of God involves a life of praying to God. Life in the kingdom is a life of prayer. It is a kingdom of prayer. If you like, the kingdom of God advances through prayer. That is how the kingdom of God is expanding. And we see this in the life of Jesus himself. You see, one important thing we need to understand is that Jesus cannot bring us into the kingdom of God without Jesus himself living a life of prayer. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Jesus cannot bring us into the kingdom of God unless Jesus himself lives a life of prayer. That's what we're seeing in Mark. And we cannot follow Jesus without a life of prayer. So my task this morning is very simple. I want to show you how the praying of Jesus in this passage advances the kingdom of God in our lives today. That's what I'm doing this morning. In the evening, I want to look at the same verse, but from a different angle. In the evening, I will show you how the praying of Jesus sets the template on how you should pray as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Okay? So those are the two sides to which we are looking at this passage. So look with me at verse 35 
of Mark 1. There are just two things I want to show you briefly this morning about the way the praying of Jesus advances the kingdom. In your outline, it gives us the first point. The first point is that Jesus is here praying as one of us. Jesus is praying as one of us. So, it is early Sunday morning. So, Saturday, Jesus is out there in the synagogue healing, casting out a demon. He's gone to Simon's mother-in-law's and, and he, he healed her uh, while he's staying at Simon uh, Peter's house. That was on Sunday. Every, the, whole, the whole town came to see Jesus on, on Saturday. Sorry. Now, it is Sunday morning. It is probably around 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, we are, as I said, in the town of Capena. We are outside Simon Peter's house, a follower of Jesus, and it is very dark. Everyone in the Capena is fast asleep. But as we look closely at this house of Simon, we can see a man opening the door. Uh, who is this man? Where is he going at this dark hour? Well, Mark tells us the man is Jesus. Let's read verse 35 again. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Jesus here is going off to a quiet place to have quality time with God. Now, that immediately should force you to pause. You should pause there. Because you see, the first words of Mark, what did the first word of Mark tell us? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know already that Jesus is God the Son. That was the first sermon. And we have seen in verse 10 to 11, the Holy Trinity appear there, made manifest, so to speak. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit appearing at Jesus' baptism. So there's no doubt Jesus is God. So the first question we have to ask here is, why is Jesus praying then? What is God doing praying to God? Is, 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 is God doing this simply to set an example for you? Even though it is not real, it's just showing it. You can also, if you follow me, you should pray like this. Is that what Jesus is doing? Or is Jesus just pretending? Just pretending to pray. He's gone out there just pretending. I recently read about a group of women who are paid to cry at funerals of strangers in Ghana. Strangers, funeral, are paid, you know, these women are paid to cry at strangers' funerals in Ghana. So if you're worried there's not going to be enough tears at your funeral, <laughs> you need to give these ladies a call. Uh, they cry seriously. They are called the Funeral Contractors Association. And they'll come and cry out at your funeral. They're, no matter how you have lived, they'll make you, everybody think they loved you. You can pay for these guys. Is that, is that what Jesus is doing? Pretending to cry out before God. The early church father, John of Damascus, struggled with this question we are asking this morning. He, he asked, how, how can Jesus ask God for anything when Jesus is God and he didn't need anything? Well, Jesus is not pretending. And you, if you've been following us in Mark, you already have an answer to this question that John Damascus spent his life struggling with. And the answer is that Jesus, he's really genuinely crying out to God in prayer. 
And this is possible because Jesus is not only fully God, he is also fully man. There are two natures in Christ as we've seen. Jesus is 100% God and is 100% man. And together they make the person of Jesus. He is fully human and therefore he is fully able to come before God and has needs in human nature to pray. Now last year I read about a man from Guangxi province in China who for the last 20 years has dressed as a woman. Strange thing we might say. Why does this man do this? Well he dresses as a woman because his mother is mentally ill. And to help his his mentally ill mother to cope with the death of his sister, he dresses like his sister. He puts on the sister's dress. The first time this man did this, this humiliating thing, it was quite humiliating for him. The first time he did this, the mother was so happy in her sort of mentally ill state. So he just continued, and he's been doing this for the last 20 years. Taking on the humiliation of wearing the dress so that his mother can cope with his loss. Well, in a, in a very mentally difficult state. Well, in the same way here, Jesus, if you like, has taken on our shame by identifying with us, becoming fully man. He has, as I like to say, put on the rags of human flesh with all its limitations. He remains fully God, but he has chosen, if you like, to wear our dress of the flesh. He has chosen to live among us as a man with all its limitations. And fully dependent on God the Spirit and prayer to do his mission of saving sinners. You see, one of the limitations that Jesus being fully man means that Jesus takes on our needs. If he's fully man, then he has the same needs that we have, humanly speaking. He must eat, he must, he must need encouragement as fully man. He must be strengthened by God as, a full, as fully man. And Jesus, we see in the gospel here, these needs are met by being in constant unbroken fellowship with God through prayer. He needs daily help from God through prayer. And so he's come here, Mark tells us in verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And we can imagine as Jesus, God the Son, is on his knees, as the angels now are looking at him there on his, on his knees. He's praying before God the Father. Imagine how the angels must, they must be astounded at this humiliation. They must think God loves his human beings so much that he bears the humiliation of prayer for them. You see, God loves us enough to take on the humiliation of prayer and he's doing this not for people who love him. This humiliation of prayer is not for people who somehow want to be with God. No, Jesus has come for sinners. People who don't want anything to do with God. And he's taken on this humiliation of prayer for them. If you like, when we see, when we read in the Bible, and there he prayed, friends, let us immediately think of his grace in Christ. The grace is poured on us. Let us realize that Jesus praying is the grace of God being displayed to you. This is God's grace to you. And if you are a true, I mean, if you are a true follower of Jesus this morning, this is good news for your prayer life. 
good news. It is good news for my prayer life when I read it. Uh, do you struggle with talking to God? And uh, maybe you fear that you are not good or passionate enough in prayer. Some saints, they can stand up and they can pray for 10 minutes unbroken, full of New King James Version language. And you are looking at them and you are thinking, I can't say all of this stuff. My prayers are not good enough. Sometimes you hear of stories of saints of old who spent, Martin Luther would spend four hours in prayer this morning. We'll be challenged about that this evening. But we we'll spend four prayers in God in the morning. George Muller, you know the prayer life of George Muller. You can pick up his book in the, in the foyer there. He prayed and prayed so many hours. And God always actually answered George Muller's life. But when you pray, you're probably thinking, when I pray and I'm on my knees, I can't think of many areas where God has answered my prayers. And maybe that has put you off. You're thinking, there are so many great saints who are praying to God. Why should I bother praying to God? He's busy answering them, not worrying about me. And maybe you stop praying in a tangible, serious way. Or maybe like me, you try and pray, and then sometimes you get bored while you're praying. Has this happened to you? Sometimes my mind wanders when I'm praying. So I'm praying to God after 10, 7 minutes, then a thought enters my head. Oh, there was something I haven't told you. I think I better write that down. I better go and tell her something. And your mind wanders, and you're bored as you're praying, and you feel like, I mean, what am I doing? I'm probably not even a serious uh, prayer warrior, as you say. Why should I bother praying? You feel guilty when that happens, don't you? You feel a sense of guilt. You feel you should, take, you should be taking prayer more seriously than that. Some people can pray for two minutes and three minutes, and it just can't go on. They stop and they feel frustrated. Another issue enters their mind. At these your experiences, you're trying to pray, but somehow you find it very difficult. Well, if you're like me, Jesus here is saying to you, I sympathize with your struggles to pray. Because I am fully man. I know the difficulty of prayer. I know it's hard work. Because I'm a man. I'm fully man. And fully God. And guess what? Jesus does not just know your struggles to pray. As a man, he knows intimately the aches and the pains and the burdens that are even driving you to know. And therefore, the humanity of Christ, which we don't often think about, is so vital for us in prayer. The writer to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews 5, verse 7. It describes, says this about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, of, by the way, in his life, that's how we should read that. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In his life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. How? With loud cries and tears. To him, that is God, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Friends, take it from the Lord here that Jesus is not only willing to hear your broken and bold prayers, he is able to make sense out of your confused prayers. There is no one in this room, if you have truly come to faith in Jesus, there is no one in this room who has truly come to faith in Jesus who does not desire to pray. And yet, in some sense, they struggle with it. And there is no one in this room who is not desperately, in some way, if you've come to faith in Christ, wanting something, God, to meet some need in your life. 
If you are a human being and you trust in Christ, you have a prayer burden right now. Some of you need prayers to remove a deeply addictive sin in your life. You would love God to free you from that. You have repented, you keep falling back into it again. And you are praying for God to deal with it. Some of you need prayers for God to give you a new heart, to, another new heart, I guess, to, to forgive some wrong done to, to you many years ago. Someone hates you very badly, and you know you, can't, you haven't really forgiven them because your mind still plays about how they treated you, and you haven't forgiven them. And actually, you know Jesus commands you that you must forgive others before you come to God in prayer. And you're aware of that verse, and it's pressing on you deeply. It, it affects your prayers. And it's a serious verse to consider. And it's affecting you. Some of you need prayers for more unity in your marriage. You want your husband and you to be on the same page. Same page about church. Same page about doing God's work in the, uh, in the world. Same page about raising kids. And you want that. And so you're praying. Perhaps for, for their conversion. Or just their heart change. Some of you need prayers to have more biblical friends. You desire that God gives you more biblical friends. Jesus is our best friend, but our best friend brings more best friends in our lives to point us to him, our best friend. And you would love that. Some of you are praying there for a work situation to improve. It burdens you that you work in a very secular setting. It's hard for you to live for Christ there. The prayer request, amen. What is your prayer need this morning? Well, this passage is saying, bring it to your brother. King Jesus, he is a man like us and he understands your need for prayer. Go to him with full confidence. He will not dismiss your prayers. Go to him now. Because friends, Jesus here is not only praying as one of us, he is also praying for your benefit in order that you may work powerfully to advance his kingdom. And that is our second and final truth. Truth number one, Jesus is praying as one of us. The final truth is that Jesus is not just praying as one of us, Jesus is praying now for our benefit. Look again with me at verse 35. Mark says Jesus is where? In a desolate place. Let's read that. And rising early in the morning, while it was dark, he departed and went out. Where has he gone? To a desolate place. And there he prayed. The original word here for desolate place is the same word in verse 12 for the wilderness. It is also the same place, I think, in verse 3 or verse 4. And there's three, actually, of God appearing in the wilderness. That prophecy from Isaiah. So it's actually the same word. Now... It might intrigue you then to ask why different, why it doesn't say Jesus went to a, to, the, to a wilderness and there he prayed. The reason is that what Mark is saying is that Jesus has not gone to the Judean wilderness where he was tempted. No, Jesus has come to a place in Capernaum that resembles the wilderness. He is in a solitary place, as some version says. Now, we need to understand this because throughout Mark, we're going to see Jesus do this. Jesus, and even throughout the gospel, Jesus constantly in the gospels withdraws to such desolate places. Now, we must ask our question, has Jesus just stumbled upon this idea of going to this desolate place? Is he just doing this at random? 
No, he's not. He's not doing this at random. These places are meant to be symbolic for his mission of advancing the gospel of God. As of establishing the kingdom of God. Jesus here is doing what many of us do, okay? When we're observing important events in our lives, we choose symbolic places. So, if you are married and the wedding anniversary comes up, you know, 20 years from now, I guess, you may decide to choose to go for a meal, take your wife out to a meal, to that place where you first met, I guess, a restaurant. If it was a good one. <laughs> Mine wasn't really a good one where I went the first date with Eunice. But if it was good, you might want to go back, right? It's, it's, it has symbolism, meaning for you. So you go back there. We see this with political uh, conferences when politicians meet. They usually pick for a conference somewhere perhaps poor and deprived. And they, you know, they, they're conservatives or the labor, they'll go to this deprived place. They, they want to show that we're having a conference among people who are poor because our party is about reaching, making a new Britain. Places we go to often have symbolism. In the same way, this desolate place Jesus has gone to is pointing us back to what happened in the Old Testament. You see, Israel lived in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then God sent Moses to rescue them and bring them where? Out of the slavery of Egypt into the land of Canaan. Now, if you know your Old Testament or the book of Exodus, Exodus very well, God could have chosen to send them straight into Canaan, just two days. But God chose to take them through the path of the wilderness. And he chose to take them through that path because he wanted them to be ready to arrive in Canaan, fully prepared to be able to subdue the land after having been tested. But as they were going through the wilderness, you know the story, isn't it? They started grumbling. In fact, I was reading through Exodus recently as part of my Bible reading plan. And I noticed that after three days, they are already complaining and saying, oh, we want to go back. What are we doing here? We had nice houses in Egypt. They rebelled against God. And we saw that God persevered with them throughout this journey in the wilderness for 40 years, I guess. And, and as they persevered through that period of time, many of the generations died through that period. But they make it to Canaan, don't they? They, they make it there. But as they arrive in Canaan, we, we spent 57 in Judges, we saw that they sin again in Canaan. And they're sinning because, why are they sinning? They're sinning because they're sinners. Despite all God has done for them, they're sinning. And that story of Judges is telling us that Israel needed, needed a leader, not only who just leads them into the physical land of Canaan. They needed a leader who can change their heart, do an open heart at surgery, insert a new heart within them that loves God. They need a leader who, if you like, would not only deliver them from the physical slavery of Egypt, they needed a leader who would deliver them from the spiritual slavery of sin, Satan, and hell. They needed a real heart transplant. And Mark here is telling us, by showing us Jesus going into these desolate places, that Jesus has come. He is that leader. God has been preparing in the Old Testament for the coming of Jesus, who established the kingdom of God. And Mark is telling us here, he departed and went out to a desolate place. As we read that, we are reminded again that Jesus has come like Moses, you see, to lead a second exodus. A new exodus of people that love him. 
And that's quite important to understand because do you notice that if you read the Old Testament, what we see Moses doing? We see Moses often withdrawing from the people, isn't it? He will pray over at the mountain. He will commune with God. Then he will come out. Sometimes you'll find they're making a golden calf or they've gone wild in some way. But then Moses goes back again. He pleads to, to God for the people. He's, he's doing that all the time. And Jesus here is doing the same thing. He spends time does his work, then he withdraws, he goes and communes with God. Again, he comes to them, he does the work, then he withdraws. Jesus is our new Moses, leading a new exodus. And unlike Moses who couldn't even make it into Canaan, because Moses failed in his task to lead. Jesus is leading us into Canaan. He embodies not only Israel itself, he embodies Moses as well. And prayer here is so vital for Jesus to do this work of leading us into the kingdom of God. Because you see, Jesus, as he's doing this work, is facing many temptations. Many of them. Already, did you notice there's a temptation is faced there in verse 36 to verse 37? After Jesus has done the miracles before, Peter and his friends, they turn up. What are you doing? Praying. We should, we should be out there doing ministry work. Lots of people are looking for him. He's being tempted with popularity. A lot of things that all of us, people who teach, are tempted with. But Jesus needs to pray so that he may keep temptations at bay. We saw him, we read in Matthew, don't we? His temptation for 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus does that. What is he doing in the wilderness? He's praying, fasting. Getting closer to God. And through prayer and fasting is keeping temptation at bay. Yes, Jesus is fully God. But remember, Jesus must do his work as a man, as I've said before, to save you from sin. He must live as a man dependent on God to save you. The point I'm trying to get to quickly is this. I want you to understand this morning that the praying of Jesus is as important as the sweats of blood in Gethsemane. The praying of Jesus here is as important as the blood spilled on Golgotha. Because you see, if Jesus is not devoted to God, he cannot live a sinless life. If Jesus is not praying and being strengthened by the Spirit, he cannot stay sinless. And if he cannot stay sinless, then his death on the cross is meaningless. We say, not only does the death of Christ save us, the sinless life of Christ saves us. How does he save us? Because the sinless life of Christ is fully imputed on you when you come to faith in Christ. God now looks upon you if you have repented and trusted in Christ as if you lived the life that Jesus lived. And that's so important, isn't it? Not only the cross, but the life. Not only the life, but the incarnation saves us. All these things in the life of Jesus saves us. And the praying of Jesus saves us from our sin. Because his death on the cross is meaningless if he stumbles in sin. And of course we learn that Jesus, in some sense, cannot stumble in sin. Because the God, his divine nature, works as a fair self mechanism. But you have to look at a different sermon there, which we looked at on verse 12 to verse 13 to understand that truth a bit deeper. The point I'm making here is that thank God that Jesus is obedient here. Thank God that he continues to be obedient to God to pray. By the way, if Jesus doesn't pray, it's a sin. Because God commands all men to pray. And so Jesus, by praying, is obeying God. He's staying sinless. 
I'm probably repeating myself there. The point is we should thank God that he continues to be obedient through prayer. And he continues all the way to the cross to die for your sin and mine. And because Jesus is obedient, all who trust in Jesus have immediate access to God. When we pray, God hears us because we are now in the kingdom. The kingdom of God has advanced in Jesus through prayer and now if we trust in Christ, we have a relationship with him. Immediate access to the throne of grace. President Donald Trump does his amazing fundraising campaign for 2020. He has these dinners he has. And he normally charges the attendees there $35,000 a plate. And you know, some of you are shaking your heads. Who would pay $35,000 to see Donald Trump? We are busy protesting against him here in London. But, but people do that, business leaders. Why? One word, access. Access. They want access to power. There's no one here in this room who does not want access to powerful people who can make our lives better. The MP sent me a letter, no personal letter, just a letter with flyers. He says, if you want access to him, here's a flyer. Get the flyer, make an appointment. And I should put it out there because I'm sure many of you would like to see the MP. We want access to people who have power, who can transform the lives in our society, isn't it? Political leaders, business leaders, celebrities. Isn't this why we follow celebrities on Twitter and Facebook? We want access to these people and we love it when we hear what's going on in their lives. And if we can tweet them and they answer back, we love that too. They're talking to us. Wow, famous celebrity. And you know what? As I thought about this, people are not just desperate enough to pay money to have access to power. Sometimes people even lose their dignity to have access to power people. I've been thinking about the Harvey Weinstein saga recently. And it struck me, as the trial starts, it struck me that one reason why Harvey Weinstein was able to do all those despicable things is that there were a lot of actresses who were desperate to be famous. It did an evil thing, but a lot of them felt they had to keep their careers going by doing a hush-hush, by not, by, not, you know, by not saying anything. And so he exploited these women. Because people have this desire to have access to powerful people. Well, listen, friends. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning, you are free and permanent access to the most powerful person in the universe. The Lord God Almighty. It is free. It is immediate. Right now, if you pray, God hears you. And you can do that because God has removed the only barrier you have between him and you. And he's removed it by his death on the cross. The only barrier you have is sin. And God has dealt with it. You can have access to God because Jesus has taken away that barrier for you by his death. And maybe you are carrying the guilt of a sin you have committed in the past. And it wears heavily on you. We all have sins like that, don't we? And you're wondering whether your prayers now are being blocked. Like sort of there is a <laughs> fixed permanent there. And they're being blocked. Well, God is saying to you this morning, talk to me. You're my child. The way is open for you. You don't need to jump through some hoops. You don't need to go see a special pastor for prayers. Come to me now. You have access in Christ. You don't need to fix yourself up before you come to me. 
come to me because Jesus has already fixed you on the cross. So come to me now. And my encouragement to you this morning is that go to him. If you have truly surrendered your life to Christ, go to Jesus now. Bring your burden to him. But as you do that, remember, I keep saying, only if you are true, you're a true follower of Jesus. Because you see, friends, going to God is not a lottery ticket. You know, you buy a ticket and you're hoping, you know, it's God going to hear me or not, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, a, it's not a chance thing. You must know in your heart you have truly repented. Because John 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, not, not anyone here can come to God except through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says. So this is what we have to remind you even now. That you can only go to God if you admit you're a sinner. And you ask Jesus, listen to me, you ask Jesus to completely take over your life. Jesus is not interested in people who take him half-heartedly. To be truly born again, it's a complete takeover. A rearrangement, a heart surgery. And if you've surrendered to him in that way, you can be confident you have access to God. Because when you surrender to him, he gives you that new heart. And the Holy Spirit comes lives in your heart. Friends, we don't even know how to pray. It is the Holy Spirit himself who prays for us with groans too deep for words. A question I've always struggled with is, does God hear the prayers of non-Christians? The first answer, of course, is that God hears the prayer of those when they repent, he hears them. I don't rule out the fact that God, out of his providence, can answer a prayer of a non-Christian. Because God, God can do anything, isn't it? He can do anything. But the Bible is clear that if you are not surrendered to Christ, you are dead. And dead people can talk. You need the life of God to work in your life, to give you new life so that you can pray. And guess what? You can't pray without God. Why? Because only God knows how to talk to God. So we need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, be the vehicle that offers up the prayer. This is why Paul says we don't know how to pray. But the Holy Spirit himself prays for us with groans too deep for words. That's why you need to be born again. Because that is the only way even your prayers will be acceptable before God. So how do we become born again then? When we become born again, God opens up our hearts. Doesn't he? He opens up our hearts and he enables us like he opened Lydia's heart. And through that, we are then able to pray to God. Let me wrap this up now and simply say, if you are praying without repentance, it is a stench in the sight of God. God hates the prayers of the wicked if they are not truly converted. My people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, Paul says. Um, the Lord says in Isaiah, you must be first converted. You must repent. Of whatever age you are, you must first repent so your prayers can be a sweet-smelling perfume before God. And if you do that, you can know you have access to God. Not only you have access to God, you can know that God is praying for you before God. God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, prays to God the Father. God the Son, sorry, with the God the Holy Spirit, offers our prayers to God the Father. 
He does that for you already. If you're trusting Jesus today, what more encouragement do you need to pray? I don't know what I can say to you, what more encouragement I can give you to bring your burdens before God than to tell you that God takes your prayers and offers them up to himself. I don't know what more encouragement you need to stop worrying and start praying. Because God knows about your worries. And is working on them. He's praying for your worries. Even now, Jesus is praying. He's praying here in Mark. Even now in heaven, he's praying. Even now, he stands in heaven pleading your case. Even now, your name is graven on his hand. Even now, it is written on his heart. The hymn writer says, So come before God, because Jesus prays for you. Offer your prayers to him with confidence. And let God advance the kingdom of God through you by prayer. Amen.